Goethe as Psychologist, 1929. In addition to his genius as a poet, Goethe was also a great sage whose insights into the human soul have assured him a prominent rank among the greatest psychologists in all of history. In this discussion we wish to present a coherent portrait of this man, who was alleged to have been a man whose inner life was marked by innumerable contradictions. We can best achieve our ends only after we have familiarised ourselves with the historical as well as the personal context in which his unique style of thought came to fruition. Three concepts ruled the spiritual landscape of Europe during the later half of the 18th century. Nature, personality and freedom. In the francophone sphere, of course, these elements profoundly conditioned and informed the discourse of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and in Germany, the standard bearer of these ideas was Herder. On one side, this constellation of ideas encouraged a love of nature, which was embodied most especially in the cult of the natural landscape, while on the other side, there developed a growing emphasis upon the emotional life of man. Thus, the heart reigns over the head, just as melancholy and sensuality soon dominate mere reason and understanding. It is this very obvious emphasis on the priority of the heart over the head that accounts for the astonishing influence exerted upon European culture by Goethe's novel The Sorrows of Young Werther. Likewise, this period saw a marked revival in the conviction that the vital centre of the cosmos is located within the stronger personalities, a creed that was also a major component of Renaissance ideology. Once more, the loftiest development of every inherited disposition and talent within a man constituted the pinnacle of life for Europeans, just as ethical restraint and self-discipline began to be seen as mere hindrances and roadblocks that could only interfere with the creative unfolding of the vital powers within truly great spirits. The young Goethe participated, of course, in the revolutionary movement that we know as the Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, Nevertheless, the young Goethe soon convinced himself that there was also a danger in the chaotic indiscipline of the young disciples of the movement, a danger that might one day wreak havoc on those personalities whose inner life is not governed by the form-giving impulses that have their source in nature itself. Thenceforth, Goethe will sing, as no one else has ever done, of the melancholy side of life. In fact, all of his tragic heroes meet their downfall in the end of their struggles with destiny. Werther, Weislingen, Franz, Eduard, Ottilie, Tasso, Egmont, Faust, Gretchen, and so on. In his own lifetime, Goethe was already hailed as the only genius who might well succeed in his mastering life mission, which was seen as the reconciliation of elemental nature with the laws of spirit. Goethe sought to do this by harmonising the poles of nature and spirit, unlike the procedure insisted upon by Immanuel Kant, who placed nature and spiritual law in the sharpest antithetical contrast that the mind of man could conceive. As a personality, Goethe embodied in the most magnificent style the collaboration between the masculine active pole and the feminine pole characterised by a pathic receptivity. From that feminine component in his nature stems his intense feeling for actuality, just as from his masculine component comes his unprecedented ability to recognise and to reveal the sharpest critical distinctions. A feeling for actuality, 
and a highly developed critical sense were often treated as identical items in polite conversation during this period, although the state of affairs was quite otherwise in formal philosophical discourse. In that area, actuality was viewed as the common possession of humanity, and one that had its source in our immediate experience, whereas the facts, on the other hand, are apprehended by the living person on the basis of the activity of spirit. Thus, as a mere fact, a stand of trees is one and the same, both when it is being gazed upon by the canny eye of the speculator who seeks to convert this segment of nature into profit, or it is the living substance that forms the basis of the botanist's research. However, as an actuality, the stand of trees in question is perpetually renewing its phenomenal aspect, which has changed ceaselessly due to the influence of various meteorological factors, along which we will merely mention the action of the wind and also under the shifting radiance with which the able light garbs each tree. We might even hear the claim of a landscape painter who seeks behind the imminent tree its primordial image. Goethe's unsurpassed powers of visual discrimination led him to become the modern world's preeminent phenomenologist. And it may indeed be that in Goethe we confront the essential man of the eye. In Goethe the operation of rational cognition transpired in harmonious accord with his feeling of the phenomenological totality. Spiritual cognition and perception of the world image is an immediate and indivisible event an intuition of fresh revelations communicated from the world without to the world within. Whoever finds that he is able to comprehend this mode of perception, and who is also able to establish his discoveries based upon the most primordial realities, will not restrict his scrutiny of life's deepest secrets to the domain of purposeful consciousness. For he is well aware of the fact that his observations are valid only while his cognitive forces have been brought into play. In fact, Goethe formulated the very concept of the unconscious, which he saw as equidistant from the pseudo-unconscious of the Leibniz school, and from the verbal phantom bandied about by academic epistemologists. Goethe demonstrated that the unconscious was also not the working out of persistent physical processes within the organism that have merely eluded our notice, but rather processes that reveal themselves in talented individuals as well as in the highly trained. For the unconscious was the very foundation upon which nature erected herself, to the precise extent that nature transmits inspiration to the conscious mind. Goethe called this unconscious power the daemonic, and he says of it that, Every great thought that bears ripe fruit and leads to profound effects stands far removed from the mind that would seek to control it. Man should look upon the harvested fruits of the unconscious as an unexpected windfall bestowed by heaven above. It is our affinity with the daemonic that makes its advent seem something utterly overpowering, as it were, and often convinces an individual that this force arises from his personal impulses whereas its primal source is actually in the unconscious substratum, a region over which, as we have seen, he exerts no control whatsoever. In another place, Goethe asserts, The daemonic is the force that is immune to the ministrations of rational processes. It does not always reside within my nature, although I am frequently overwhelmed by it. 
At one point, Goethe goes so far along this line of speculation as to insist that the unconscious is synonymous with life itself. Man cannot abide for very long in the conscious state, therefore man must often yield himself to the impulse that lures him ever deeper into the realm of the unconscious, for it is there that man has his deepest roots. Far more significant than any evolutionist's conceptualization of the unconscious substrata of life is Goethe's scornful dismissal of the virtues of excessive self-observation. In the sharpest opposition to academic thought, at least as it has operated since the age of Descartes, but in consonance with the truly great psychologists of every epoch, Goethe regards the notion that we have access to immediate knowledge of the self to be a pathetic delusion. In my opinion, man can never succeed in his attempts to know himself, since he can never install in himself in the appropriate perspective from which he would be able to generate valid statements of the facts. Others will always know me better than I know myself. And again, man can never comprehend himself with anything approaching the accuracy with which we can comprehend the world. As Goethe's readers know full well, his collected works are filled with innumerable utterances of a similar sort. We are now able to recognise Goethe's discovery of these insights as being rooted in his unique capacity for perception. Now we turn our attention to the opposite pole, specifically of his masculine activity. For it was this orientation which irresistibly tempted him to involve himself in the active realm of public affairs, even though he retained his acuity of perception, situated at the feminine pole of his character, which never permitted Goethe to ignore, or even to forget, that these activities at the Weimar court were characterised by an almost grotesque superficiality. His watchword now is formulated in his mastering motto that claims, To be active is man's first duty. Whenever I cannot conform myself to the demands associated with that duty, I recognise such a peculiar situation as an indication that there is a circle of endeavour to which my vocation will not grant me entrance, and I have never envisioned myself as a somnambulist. One should not too readily dismiss such utterances as expressions of Goethe's infatuation with the whole idea of the man of action, for what is actually at work within him during these times is Goethe as sculptor. Goethe as a creative man whose idea is formal excellence. What he recognised with an almost divinatory penetration was the fact that spiritual apprehension depends upon spiritual creativity. There is no conscious experience that is not productive, enriching, and creative. Animals are instructed by their internal organs, said the thinkers of antiquity, and I insist that man is himself in precisely the same situation. This realisation introduces us now to Goethe's representation of the genius, one whom he regards as the bearer of a unique fund of creative power that, in its turn, arises from the foundation provided by the self-renewing vitality of the genius. It is without connection to the management of our business affairs, just as it is unrelated to our relationship with fine art. Creativity exists, in fact, quite remote from the quotidian round. The only exceptions to this rule come into play when our thoughts, our connection with other people, and our deeds themselves enhance life itself. 
The person to whom we apply the name genius demands precedence before all others with all the irresistible force of eternal youth. For in him youth is a perpetual renewal of vitality that bursts forth like a volcano, intermittently erupting with the hot powers of perfect youth. At such perfect moments, Goethe tells us, he experiences a renewed puberty. These insights were to inspire the meditations of the German Romantics in subsequent years, and it would be the Romantics who were able to discover new territories for psychology, although their findings, sadly, have never been properly worked out due to the contemporary academic psychologist's superstitious faith in the all-creative power of spirit. It is crucial to our exposition that the reader understand precisely how significant a role Goethe's marked will to form played in his perception of, and reverence for, the full wealth of the soul inhering in a significant human character. Likewise, Goethe was of course completely justified in his recognition of the iron limits set by nature, not merely over personal volition, a matter of quantity, but also, and perhaps more significantly, over the idiosyncrasies of personal, critical judgment, a matter of quality. No person can perceive with his senses that which cannot be grasped by the character. The French think precisely as they do only because of the character with which they have been endowed. Our own position is in any meaningful ordering of rank is utterly and completely predetermined. It is a false belief that inspires those who claim that the glove will always grow large enough to accommodate one's hand satisfactorily. As we must agree if the glove in question is crafted out of iron, for iron has an imminent shape. It is more correct to say that the fit is determined by the inherent characteristics of the person who is inserting his hand within the putative item. This vibrant consciousness of the iron fatality that rules our destiny is notably expressed in the first of the Orphic words. Likewise, to those who erroneously believe in the imaginary ability of education to bring about an authentic alteration in a particular character, Goethe retorts that education is but the inculcation of rational behaviour, and each student's capacity for such education is strictly governed by the talents with which he was endowed at birth. If outstanding capacity is a predetermined endowment, there will inevitably result the formation of an individual who is fated to achieve creative excellence in his life. While the Romantics, and later still Nietzsche, awaited the loftiest of life's joys in those moments when an ecstatic repression of limitation of the ego had been achieved, Goethe's own limitations were never more clearly expressed than in the quatrain in which he affirms this very limitation. Commoner and prince and hero lived and died in every age. The highest joy bestowed upon the sons of earth is found but in the personality. This attitude of Goethe's resonates quite nicely with his development of the theory of an immortal formative principle at work in nature, to which he gives the Aristotelian title of Entelechy. Just as intimate contact with a unique life may well draw lesser mortals into its gravitational field, as it were, within which these individuals find that they can own actually prosper under this beneficent influence, such individuals can only be comprehended if their living context is borne in mind. 
The result of the process to which we refer was in fact the development of the Goethe-type character as it transpired in the socialised personality. To us, no one can surpass Goethe in the global treasures of richer, gentler and noble vitality, from which all disturbing and painful emotions have been excluded in an ongoing synergistic potentiation of both the society as well as the individuals that comprise its components. Goethe became the most prominent apostle of good ton, proper social behaviour. In 18th century Germany, the most rigid adherent of the strictest morality that, ironically, would subsequently encourage the rise of the moralistic rabble to the stature of a significant force in history, for eventually the West's codes of law were inspired solely by a purely human conception of Eros. In the end, therefore, we must avoid any suspicion that there is even a trace of irony when Goethe, in his latter years, proclaims such platitudes as, The proper study of mankind is man. <laughs>